Hi, I'm Mark Okren, and I devised the Klingon language heard in Star Trek, starting with Star Trek Three, and to this day. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The aliens of Star Trek are the true backbone of the franchise, and are responsible for making the universe as large as it appears. These diverse races come in all shapes and forms, and each have their own distinctive ways of speaking. But believe it or not, these species aren't just shouting pure gibberish. At least in most cases, they are actually communicating in a real language. And for that language to exist, it had to be created by someone. And today, we're speaking with that someone. This week on Trek Untold, we're speaking with Mark Okrand, the mastermind behind Klingon, Vulcan, Kelpian, and some other foreign tongues you've heard in Star Trek and other places. Mark has a PhD in linguistics from the University of California, Berkeley, specializing in indigenous languages on the west coast of America. He was a postdoctoral fellow in the anthropology department of the Smithsonian Institute, worked in the early days of closed captioning on television, and has been a Trekkie for his entire life. Mark's story begins with the second Star Trek motion picture, The Wrath of Khan, and has continued on for decades. Mark's contributions to the franchise will live on well beyond any of our lifetimes, and his story is one that deserves to be told. And I've got to tell you, this is easily one of the most unique episodes I've ever done on this show. And I think you're going to learn not just a lot about Star Trek history, or behind-the-scenes in the entertainment industry history, but also how a language is created and understood. And that's something I think a lot of us maybe take for granted in our everyday lives, but really for language and communication to happen, someone had to put all these pieces together, and Mark is one of those people who has studied and understood how that process all comes together. And it just so happens that in this instance, it also happens to come together through the lens of Star Trek. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or have bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. 
Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line, this is the man responsible for the Klingon language, as well as all sorts of other linguistics education in this country. Uh, we've got today joining us Mark Okrand. Mark, how are you today? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, this is pretty interesting to actually talk to the man who has invented Klingon. And I've got many questions about that whole process. But uh, first things first, I like to ask my guests this question at the start of every interview. And that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? My earliest memory of Star Trek is the original series, because I'm old enough for that. <laughs> the original series was on, uh, when it was first on, was when I was in college. And at the time, uh, people didn't have TVs in their dorms very much. A couple people did, but mostly not. So I would see it from time to time if I was visiting a friend downtown who had a, who had a TV or something. So I was aware of it and saw it and knew about it, but didn't see it routinely until it hit reruns. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, let's just start basically, uh, Mark, as a young kid, uh, where did you grow up? <laughs> what did your parents do? And what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> my dad was a lawyer. My mom was, well, she was a bookkeeper and a, and a mom, a stay-at-home mom. Both. Um, what did I want to be when I grew up? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't. What I was fascinated with growing up all the time was, was radio and TV and my, and my summer jobs and later, more than summer, was, was radio. I worked in radio for about four or five, professional radio for about four or five years before I got involved. Well, and, as, and at the beginning of my involvement with all this linguistic stuff. So where did linguistics come into play for you? Because that definitely is a, an interesting thing for somebody to come into, especially uh, as a teen, or I, I don't really know when you got into that first. But College. That college. Me, was college. college. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When I went to college, the, the school that I went to was brand new. Well, it was almost brand new. It was the second year of existence, this University of California in Santa Cruz. Uh, and there was a course all the freshmen had to take, which was called Language, Culture, and Society, or maybe Language, Society, and Culture. I forget which way it went. But anyway, uh, I don't know what the faculty had in mind when they invented the course, but what it turned out to be was an introduction to the faculty and an introduction to various disciplines, because each week was taught by a different professor. So one week it would be a philosopher, and one week a historian, and one week a literature guide, one week a psychologist. Language was a recurring theme. But it was all from, from, from different viewpoints, which was great. As a freshman, that's great to learn about all these different things. And of all that stuff, the, 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 the lectures that kind of grabbed my attention the most were the ones given by the linguist. There was only one linguist on campus at the time. And I said, this is an interesting way to think about language, because all I thought about it before, you know, took Spanish in high school and things like that. Uh, so I took Linguistics one, or it wasn't called that, but, you know, the first course. And that was fun. So I took linguistics too. Uh, and then summer came. And by the time I came back, right, the school was brand new. They'd already re totally revamped the linguistics program. So linguistics three or the equivalent of linguistics three didn't exist anymore. I couldn't take it. It got combined with linguistics two, which I already took. So now what do we do? So what, what, what they did is they set up an independent study, which means just me and the professor would get together two, three times a week and discuss and things like that. And uh, he gave me some, some real language data to work on as opposed to textbook things. That's, that's the hook. That's where I got hooked because that was really fun and interesting and real. It wasn't, it wasn't just exercises in a book. 
So what was it exactly that got you so excited about linguistics, though? Because, you know, I, I know all sorts of people in various fields, but I've never known anybody who's done linguistics. And I imagine it is a very fascinating field. But what is it that just got you so curious and, and so deeply invested yeah, into it? it, was, it was, this sounds funny. But it was the crossword puzzle aspect of it. And what I mean by that is, is figuring stuff out. Uh, and the kind of linguistics that I did mostly uh, in, in school and afterwards uh, was looking at languages that people hadn't studied before or hadn't studied very much before and, and trying to figure it out on the basis of the available data. And I worked primarily with California Indian languages, uh, uh, which were at that time not spoken by anybody anymore or barely. And the one I studied the most had zero speakers at the time I was working on it. So it was all going through uh, notes written down by an anthropologist or Actually, his title was ethnologist. That's fancier. Um, and missionaries and things like that. So it was, the, it was the great puzzle, the great mystery of the whole thing. And a lot of what linguists do is, is, is solve mysteries because part of it is, is grammatical mysteries. How does the grammar of a language works? But it's also historical mysteries. How did this language get to be the way it is? What are they related to? What does this tell us about how the people migrated or whatever it is? So when we're talking about these Native American languages, uh, what exactly were you doing with them? Were you just decoding uh, various texts and documents? Uh, yeah, what well, of- what it was, the, uh, yeah, the various documents that I looked at were the, the people in the past, you know, trying to figure out the languages. So the earliest documents I looked at were written by a missionary in the 18th century, early 18th century, who uh, tried to understand what the, what the Indians he was dealing with were saying, and he would write that down in a very weird way. But anyway, he did that. And the bulk of the notes was by a, a well-trained linguist who was talking to the person who was the last fluent speaker of this particular language and would ask her things like, you know, how do you say I walk? How do you say you walk? How do you say she walked? And things like that. And so I would look at that. But the frustrating part, and the reason it wasn't straightforward, is two things. One is he, he never finished. Of course, you never finish. But anyway, uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, put together in any way other than the notes. Um, but also you'd see a page that would say, this is how you say, I walk, turn the page. This is how you say, you walk, turn the page. This is how you say, he walks, turn the page. This is how you say, let's have some lunch. Wait a minute, what happened to they walk? What happened to we walk, right? So it was very frustrating in that way because it wasn't all there for me. I had to wait and see maybe it's going to show up on, our, on another page, or maybe I'll have to go with, with we talk and extrapolate that you would do the same thing for we walk, which may or may not be true. So that's really a very much a lot of detective work and a lot of trying to, I guess, it sounds like you're basically working backwards to build a language in this case, because it's already been provided to you rather than you creating it. Parts of it have been provided to me, right, right. I'm trying to, to codify it to say this is how it works. And what's happened with it, actually, which is really gratifying to me, and I didn't know this would happen, is I, d- I did all of this work uh, in the... 19, late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s. Uh, well, yeah, even as late as 78 in there. And it was all kind of academic stuff. I would write articles and things like that. So even though the, the, the last speaker, last fluent speaker died in 1930, that doesn't mean that the people died. There were still plenty of, of, of folks around, but they didn't know the language except for a word here and there. So what happened is uh, they got together, the, the, the current group, people who are still around got together with a linguist from the University of Arizona. I still don't know how that link up happened, but it did. Uh, And they're working to revive the language on the basis of what I did 
and a lot of other stuff too. Not only what I did, there's, there's, there's other things too. So what I did which started out as, as, as kind of a academic exercise turned into something very practical and worthwhile. So after college, uh, you taught linguistics at UC Santa Barbara, and you became right. a fellow at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Uh, would you mind actually telling us a little, a little bit about your time in uh, the Smithsonian? Smithsonian is great. Uh, the, 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 the Smithsonian Fellowship Program, I assume it's still around. If, if it is, and if anyone's interested, you should look into this because it's incredible. It's an incredible program. I basically had the run of the Smithsonian in terms of, of facilities and research places and things like that, and the Library of Congress, too. Um, uh, and what I was doing there was further work, more work on, on this particular language, because the bulk of the notes that this guy wrote down, I, I did all the, for my dissertation, I did all of my work I did in California, because I went to graduate school in Berkeley, and that's where the notes happened to be. But most of the notes were in Washington. So the reason for the fellowship is to work on the notes in Washington. So that's what I did. I went through all, through all of those notes and expanded on what I'd done before and things like that. So at some point you got connected into the television industry because I believe uh, you began working in TV by working at the National Captioning Institute. Is that correct? Right. So how did that all begin? And what, uh, what ended up getting you from linguistics into closed captions? Money. I needed a job. That's a good reason. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was at, well, I was at the Smithsonian. Part of what I was doing besides looking into this linguistic stuff was looking for a job because this was the fellowship program was, was very, they were very clear. This is for one year. So I said, okay, I've got a year to do my work and find a job. And in academia, the job market, as you probably know, is not very good in general, and some years are even worse. And that particular year was not so hot for linguists, of the kind of linguistics I wanted to do, uh, because there's all different kinds. And I happened to meet somebody at a party in Washington, which sounds like one of these fancy things. It wasn't, it was in somebody's basement. I'm not even sure how I got there. Um, It was, oh, you're a linguist. I said, yes, this guy worked in whichever, he worked for what was then called the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in the part that dealt with education of deaf people. So he said, there's this new technology just being developed to help deaf people watch TV. And I said, what, what, what's that? He said, it's called closed captioning. Never heard that before, that phrase. So he explained a little bit about what it is. And then he said, they need a linguist. You should get a hold of them. And I'm thinking they may, they may or may not need a linguist, but I definitely need a job. Uh, so I did get a hold of them and blah, blah, blah. I, I got the job and stayed there for a long time. So I'm curious now, did this time working, uh, doing closed captions, did that actually help lead into your work in Star Trek at all? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, we know that uh, your first time with Star Trek was in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Right. Uh, you came after the film was done, but you can obviously tell us that story better than I can. Uh, but yeah, just kind of give us the lead in first to uh, how you got connected into Star Trek. I got connected into Star Trek because of, of captioning. When we started captioning, I worked with the captioning business before it was actually on the air. I, I didn't invent it, but you know, I was there for the, at, the, at the very, very beginning and did work on, on, on establishing procedures and things like that. Anyway, uh, when we first started, we could only do shows that were on tape or film. In other words, they would send us the tape. We'd watch it, you know, hear the first line, hit pause, type in what you heard, hit go, hear the next line, hit pause, type in what you heard. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what was going on. Actually, it's quite a bit more complicated than that. But we couldn't do anything live, like news and sports. Finally, we developed the technology to be able to do that, and we decided that the first program that we do 
where we advertised to the world that this is live caption because we did some experiments and didn't tell anybody because we didn't know if it would work, uh, should be something with high publicity value and low probability of error. So we picked the Oscars. The publicity value was obvious. You know, and in fact, they did say on the Oscar show, this program is being closed captioned for the first time, da, da, da. Uh, and the low probability of error is, here's a secret that everybody knows, the Oscars are scripted. They don't get out there and say, the job of the sound editor is to, they're not making that up, right? They're reading a teleprompter. It's legit. I mean, they don't know who's going to win. So we figured we could get the script ahead of time, put all that into a computer file, essentially. And the only part we'd have to do really, really live is, and the Oscar goes to so-and-so. I'd like to thank my mother and father and acting coach and all that stuff. Uh, and that way, if the live stuff wasn't as good as we thought it was, at least the rest of the show would be okay. Right? That was the thinking. And so everybody thought that was a good idea. The Academy thought it was a good idea. Um, and they said, great, we'll give you a script, but... The script keeps changing. We'll give it to you. But the next day there's revisions and the next day there's revisions. So someone has to keep track. So you make sure you always have the latest thing. And I got the task of keeping track of the script. Uh, and we had an office. We had two offices at the time, the company I worked for, one in Virginia and one in L.A. And I was in the Virginia office. And um, they flew me out to California because that's where the program came from. So I worked out of our L.A. office for a week. Got there a week ahead of the Oscars, called up who I had to call. And they say, great, welcome to Hollywood. We'll have something for you on Thursday. This was a Monday. So I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with nothing to do, which was fine with me because I grew up there, right? My friends and family are there. So I got on the phone calling up friends. Hi, I'm in town. Let's have lunch. Let's have dinner. And one of my friends said, where are you? So I, where are you calling me from? So I said, where was she? She said, oh, that's a mile from here. Come by for lunch. Okay. So I went to where she was for lunch. Well, where she was, was Paramount Pictures. She worked for, she was the, the assistant to Harv Bennett, who was the executive producer of Star Trek II, which was going on at the time. They were in post-production at the time. And I knew that. I knew what my friend did for a living. And I actually also knew Harv Bennett from a long time ago. So I knew I had two friends working on Star Trek, but that's all I knew. I knew absolutely nothing more. So she and I and another uh, woman working on the film went out to lunch. And during the lunch, the conversation switched to somehow that I was a linguist. And the woman who I hadn't known before said, oh, that's interesting because we've been talking to the linguistics department at UCLA recently. And I said, why? And she said, well, there's a scene in the film. And I guess the, the, the secrecy wasn't as heavy or as strict as it is now because she's telling me this stuff. There's a scene in the film where Mr. Spock and this new Vulcan character, a woman, talk to each other. And when they filmed the scene, the, the actors were speaking in English, because that's what the script said to do. But now that we're in post-production and editing, for a number of reasons, people think they should speak Vulcan to each other. So we're in discussions with this linguist at UCLA to basically look at the scene, look at the lips, and come up with gobbledygook that matches the lips but sounds very different. And I said, well, that's a really good idea. You know, that's, that's really a smart way to do that. And hiring a linguist makes sense to me. And she said, yeah, we thought it was a good idea too, but it's turned into a headache. And this is, what, 35 years ago or more? Um, and I honestly and truly do not remember what the headache was, except it was a boring headache. And what I mean by that, it was, it was something like, you know, uh, 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 to 
you know, couldn't get a hold of each other by the phone. Or, no one had cell phones or email or any of that stuff. Yeah, right. So she said, I don't know what we're going to do. We have to have this taken care of right away. And I said, what do you mean right away? Got to be done by the end of this week, which is exactly how long I was in town for the Oscars. So I said, I can do that. Because as she was telling me what this linguist was going to do, I was thinking how I would go about doing it. My friend said, yeah, he can do that. He's got the same kind of degrees as those people at UCLA. At that point, the associate producer walked by. They turned to him and said, hey, we just solved the Vulcan problem. He said, what are you talking about? So she told him, he said, come see me after lunch. And that's what happened. Now, the fact that I know that I knew Harv Bennett is not irrelevant to the story because ultimately it was his decision since he's the boss. It was his decision to hire me. So he wasn't hiring an unknown who just showed up out of the blues somewhere. He was hiring someone he knew, right? But that whole thing was, was just an accident because I didn't go there to get a job. I went there to get a sandwich, you know? Greatest sandwich story ever. Yeah. <laughs> so was there an earthly language that you based on when you did Vulcan, or was it purely just about trying to match those lip movements to well, just it sounds? Was, it was, it, well, it was primarily just trying to match the lip movements. So if you could see it on, on the lips, I matched it. If you could not see it on the lips, I would stick in something just to make it sound different. So O and O look the same, M and P look the same, and things like that. But stuff in the back, like... K sounds you can't see, so you can play with them. So it wasn't based on anything other than, you know, strange sounds that match lips. But after I did it, because they showed me the scene and I wrote, wrote down what they were saying. The next day I went in because I had to, they were working fast. I went in to work with the woman who played this new Vulcan character who turned out to be Savik, who was Kirstie Alley. And on the way to the soundstage, the associate producer said, you know, in Star Trek, the motion picture, they talk Vulcan. Your language should sound like that. And I'm thinking, now you tell me. <laughs> I mean, I knew that, but it didn't occur to me. Why didn't you tell me yesterday before I figured all this stuff out? You know, let's go watch that film. Okay, so we went and watched that scene because there's a scene, like the second thing that happens in Star Trek, the motion pictures on the Vulcan plot is Kolinar and all that. So I watch it. What I'm listening for is am I hearing sounds that I don't have that you cannot see? Because if there are, I can sprinkle them in and then it'll sound more like the motion picture language. And what I heard from time to time in the motion picture language was kinds of sounds. So I put a few in there because you can't see them. So then we go to the sound stage, and I'm working with Kirsty to, to do it. Because it's tricky to, to say something that matches the lips where it's a different thing. You know, it's hard enough to match the lips when it's the same thing. But here it's different. So we're working and working. And the director, who was Nick Meyer, calls the producer aside. And he said, I don't know if this Vulcan language is going to work. I could hear him, even though they were on the other side of the room. And I'm thinking, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And the producer said, what, what's, what's the matter? And the director said, I don't think Vulcan should sound like Yiddish. And what he was hearing was that <laughs> that I just put in there. And the producer said, well, let's try it. Let's just try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. And Nick said, okay. So we did it. And Nick liked it. So fortunately, so we were able to proceed. And then two, three days later, went back in. Because now I had to teach Leonard Nimoy how to say his, his lines. So I got to the 
soundstage on time. He got there on time. The engineer got there on time. And whoever brings the donuts got there on time. But nobody else was there. So I'm in a room by myself. The engineer's up in his little room. I'm in a room by myself with Mr. Spock and donuts and feeling very intimidated because I knew who he was. He didn't know who I was. So I introduced myself to him. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, they told me you'd be here. Show me my lines. Let's, let's try it. So I gave him sort of the script and he'd read it and he'd say, now, if I change this to this, will that still work as far as the lips are concerned? And I said, yeah, all right, let's change that. That'll be easier. If I change this to this, will that work? No. Okay, we'll leave that alone. So we changed it a little bit. Uh, then we recorded his lines. Actually, he first he recorded something else, a different scene. But then that particular scene, we recorded those lines. And then it was time to go work on the Oscars. <laughs> so I left. And I'm driving from Paramount to, to where the Oscars were, thinking I had just taught Mr. Spock how to speak Vulcan. You know, what a strange accomplishment. And thought... The most that will happen from this is one day I'll be in a footnote in some trivia book. And that's cool. And that's the end of it. This was, this was my, you know, adventures with Star Trek, adventure with Hollywood. No, that'll be all. But I was wrong, of course. Didn't turn out that way. Very, very glad to say that you were very wrong. It's nice to be incorrect for <laughs> this occasion because, yeah, you went on to have an even bigger impression that has lasted for generations and will continue to last for generations among Trekkies, Star Trek fans all around the world. And that's the creation of the Klingon language. And I've got so many questions about this. And clearly you're the right man to talk to about this. Um, but let's just start back with uh, how did you actually get called in to return to the Star Trek franchise? That was easy because I'd done the Vulcan. Right? Yep. So about a year and a half. After, after Star Trek II came out, I got a phone call from Harv Bennett, who said, well, Paramount liked that movie, so we're making another one called, called creatively Star Trek III. And the villains are going to be the Klingons. And I think, I meaning Harv Bennett, think that they should have their own language. You did Vulcan. Do you want to do Klingon? You know, and that's how, that's how that came about. But that was different because now we're starting from scratch, you know, as, as opposed to lip syncing what's already on the film. Well, it was scratch in the sense that it was fresh in that way, but the language had kind of sort of more or less previously existed. Of, yeah. yeah. Do you want yeah. to tell us a little about that? Yeah. In Star Trek, the motion picture, the opening scene is the Klingons, right? There's these three Klingon ships and we see inside what is presumably the lead ship. And there's the captain, commander, whatever his rank is, who knows? who's barking out commands in this strange language no one has ever heard before. And it's subtitled, so he's really saying something. And that's the beginnings of the Klingon language. All we knew about Klingon before that is a kind of throwaway line in uh, The Trouble with Tribbles, right, in the original series, where the, the Klingon Korax is insulting every, every, everything he could think of about, about the Federation. And finally, he insults the Enterprise by likening it to a garbage scowl, right? He said, the Enterprise is built like a garbage scow. You know, uh, everybody knows that. And that's why half the quadrant is learning how to speak Klingonese. So we know there's a language that the Klingons speak, but he never speaks it, nor does any other Klingon ever in the original series. But they did speak it at the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, I said, okay, the language that I'm going to come up with has to match that. Those lines... Uh, were it was kind of a, a joint uh, creation, were uh, uh, created primarily by two guys, John Poville, who was the associate producer of 
the motion picture, and James Dillon, who played Scotty. They worked together in some fashion or other to come up with this stuff. And then they gave the lines to Mark Leonard, who normally played Sarek, right, Spock's father, because he was the Klingon, for him to learn the lines. And that's that's where that comes from. But they didn't, they were concerned about what it sounds like. Okay. Uh, they wanted it to be uh, very harsh and otherworldly and whatever they had in mind. They weren't concerned really about words and grammar or anything like that. So when he's, he says, is that one word or two words or three words? I don't know. And if it's two words, is it one syllable, then two, or two syllables, then one? Yeah, who knows? So I learned all that, saw all that, wrote down you know, the subtitles matching what I heard, and arbitrarily made decisions. Cha yehush is two words. Cha is one word. Yehush is another word. Why? I don't know. Because. Because you have to start somehow. And so on. There's maybe, depending on how you count, six, seven, eight lines. That's all. And then the Klingon chips get zapped and they're not in the movie anymore. And we hear no more Klingon. There actually is more Klingon in the motion picture than, than that little bit at the beginning. And I didn't know that. So, so what I did was not based on anything other than those. I didn't know that until I met Mark Leonard. And I met Mark Leonard on the set of Star Trek III. He and I were hanging around together on the Genesis planet one day, which sounds very silly, but it's true. Uh, when they shot the scenes, some of the scenes on the Genesis planet, they, they shot them in, in order. Usually when you make a movie, you shoot everything that takes place at a particular set at the same time, regardless of where it comes in the movie, right? But for the Genesis planet, they had to do it in, in story order because the planet was falling apart. So after they would shoot the scene, uh, if they said, this is okay, then the crew would come in and destroy it a little bit. And then they'd shoot a little bit more and then they'd destroy it a little bit more. Well, they couldn't put it back, <laughs> right? So they had to make sure it was okay and they had to do it in order. So it took longer to film those scenes uh, than some other things. So there's a lot of hanging around time. So I was there and Mark was there. I don't know why he was there. He wasn't in any of those scenes, but he was there. And we introduced ourselves to each other. And he said, oh, I spoke Klingon in that first movie. I said, yeah, I know that. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out a sheet of paper. And there were all of his Klingon lines written out. All the ones that I recognized from the beginning and a whole bunch more. And I saw the whole bunch more. And I'm thinking, how did I miss that? What? Oh, my God, it's not going to match the movie. I don't remember any lines other than those lines at the very beginning. So I went back to the movie and I noticed that in addition to saying those lines, there's a, a scene, maybe more than one, on the Federation lookout station or whatever it is, where you see Mark the Klingon uh, on a view screen and he's babbling away about something or other, but you can't hear him. And that's where all those extra lines came from. Either, either you can't hear them at all or it's so low that you can't ask, oh good, they don't count. No one has ever heard those lines. I can ignore the fact that they ever existed. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, 
whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. This is Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, soon to get a promotion to Captain on Lower Decks. Some of you may know me from my acting career, but a lot of you probably don't know me from my charity. It's called drivebydugaters.org. Myself and a bunch of teenage boys from the block, we all jump into my SUV every Sunday, and we drive to the outskirts of town, and right from the car window, we deliver water and wipes and protein and tarps and socks to our adult homeless who truly need it right now. I don't know if you know this, but in LA, there's not one single public bathroom and not one single water fountain for anyone. And out there in Skid Row, there's 11,000 people in 20 square blocks. So our water and our wipes are really needed. We go out every week and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or right on the website, drivebydugaters.org and throw in any amount, even a small amount is great. For instance, you can go on the website and when you click on donate, you can see where three bucks is going and what your money is going towards or where 17 bucks is going. Sometimes it's for cheese, Sometimes it's for socks. Sometimes it's for just what's really needed, which is water. Any holiday donations you might be deciding where to relegate, please consider drivebydugaters.org. It's also completely a tax write-off. And every little tiny, tiny bit helps. Anywhere from $3 to $3 million. Your money goes directly to those who need it. And we have no overhead, no agenda, pure giving. And stay tuned for the animated version of Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks coming soon. Drivebydugaters.org. We drive by. And what we do? what do we do? We do good. Thanks so much. Hope to see you at my website. Bye. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Mark, let's take now a real deep dive into how language is made with Klingon as that example of this whole big structure we're going to talk about here today. So before you even start making words and things, how do you decide on the sonorous value, the sounds of the language? Because every language does have its own sound and the way the vowels and the consonants are used are going to be unique to that language to construct the mouth movements and the grammar um, for whatever reason that it may be. Uh, So, you know, basically... Without knowing linguistics, uh, the way I kind of think of it, it's like there's a hierarchy of sounds. Um, so where do you start and how did you accomplish this for Klingon? Well, I didn't have to start from zero. Okay, I had to start from the motion picture. So I wrote down, you know, phonetically as best I could what I was hearing Mark say in those six, seven lines in the motion picture, listed those sounds, that's the start. And then I added to that. And in adding to that, there was a couple of things I had in mind. One is the language was supposed to be guttural. Guttural is not a technical term in linguistics, but it said in the script that Krug, the villain in Star Trek III, says in his guttural Klingon, I said, well, if, it's, if he's saying it in his guttural Klingon, I better make it guttural, whatever that means. So I decided oh, guttural means those kinds of sounds. 
Fortunately, there was already a couple of kinds of sounds in the motion picture. There was a and a well, there's two, so I added a which is not the same as a right? Okay. So that's that was added because it was in the motion picture and because the script wanted it. Um, the other thing is I had to make it be an alien language. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, well, two things, two things. Two, two things competing with each other. It had to be an alien language and it had to be spoken by very human actors. So I couldn't have any sounds that the human vocal apparatus can't make. Okay, if I was making up an Earth language that I wouldn't be thinking about this, but I'm making up an outer space language. So in theory, there could be all kinds of things. But I couldn't do that because they weren't going to play tapes backwards or do anything electronic. It was going to be what's coming out of their mouths. So what I did instead is choose sounds that should not go together. And what I mean by that is languages are patterned and systematic. You know, it's very difficult to say all languages do and no languages do. Those kinds of things be a little suspicious, uh, depending on what it is. But languages tend to, and languages generally do certain things. So certain sounds tend to be found together in the same language, and certain sounds tend to not be found together in the same language. And I violated those kinds of rules. So there's no sound in Klingon that you can't find in some earth language somewhere or other, but you should not find that collection of sounds in the same language. Earth languages don't do that. And that's what gives Klingon its, I, I would hope, I had hoped, would give Klingon its, its kind of weird alien sound. Bearing in mind that these poor actors had to say this stuff, most of the sounds in Klingon are perfectly good North American English sounds. Okay, this is probably 70% or something easy sounds from that point of view, and just 30% or whatever of these difficult sounds. Difficult meaning not, not English sounds. So that's where that came from. The basic syllable structure came from the motion picture. It's syllable, 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 short little syllables. And I just followed that pattern throughout. It's different. If you're starting from scratch to make up a language, you would approach it a little differently. So you mentioned that it was meant to be very kind of guttural sounding language. And, you know, it basically has its own flow to it. And, you know, in terms of Terran languages, as we would call it in Star Trek, or earthly languages, you know, French sounds a certain way, Korean sounds a certain way, English sounds a certain way, and so on and so forth. Um, so where does the cadence and the rhythm of a language fit into this? Well, it's part, for, for Klingon in particular, it's partly from the motion picture and partly from some decisions that I made. Uh, pe- people ask me from time to time, is Klingon based on any earth language? And the answer is no. Actually, the more honest answer is I hope not. And then there's two reasons for that. One is because it's not an Earth language, okay? So it shouldn't be based on anything on Earth or resemble anything on Earth. And also because at the time of of shooting that movie, all we knew about the Klingons is what we'd seen them do in the original series and in the motion picture. Well, the motion picture is nothing. They just disappear. Uh, And in the script for Star Trek III. And what we know about the Klingons is they're mean and tough and despicable and terrible. (laughs) They're, they're, They're bad, bad dudes. So I didn't want to make the language, uh, the Klingon language, resemble, say, Portuguese. Because then everyone in Brazil and Portugal is going to be mad at me for making their language the language of these bad guys, right? Turns out they probably would have been honored as things develop. But anyway, that happened many years later. So I intentionally avoided making it sound like anything that anyone could resemble. Now, having said that, you can't help but be influenced by what you know. And what I knew is some, you know, romance languages. Uh, I knew knew some uh, Chinese and Southeast Asian languages. 
and I knew these American Indian languages. So some of that stuff would creep in there. But as soon as I realized, oh, my God, this is just the way Navajo would do it, I'd stop. Don't do that. Next thing would be very, very different. Okay, so there might be influences from all kinds of things in there, but hopefully in no way that you can figure out what comes from where. You mentioned, you know, the, the actors had to learn how to actually speak this language. So, again, this is a language that doesn't sound like an earthly language. Did you make Klingon be intuitive or was it always kind of meant to be a little bit less intuitive to speak? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by intuitive. It, it, it works. It's a real language. I mean, you can carry on a conversation in it and stuff like that. And it, that, was, that was absolutely intentional. That was Harv's idea, not mine. People say, oh, you dreamed up the Klingon language. No, I didn't. Harv Bennett did. I mean, the idea of one. I just supplied the details. I guess by intuitive, I'm, I'm talking more about just basically being able to kind of flow naturally from a speaker. Uh, well, they, it was tough uh, uh, from a phonetic point of view. From a, from a know-what-you're-saying point of view, that's different for different actors. And what I mean by that is some of the actors learned it phonetically and had no idea what they were saying. And other actors want to know exactly what each word meant. And that's just different actors approached it differently. So, uh, you know, when I, when I would work with the actors, we would, we would go over it phonetically very, very carefully. I think one of the most insightful things that any actor said to me about what, what you're talking about is Christopher Plummer. When we were working on Star Trek VI, you know, he was the main Klingon, well, there's a couple of them, but he was one of the main Klingon guys. Uh, and when I met with him for the first time to, to go over the Klingon lines, he said that he wanted to make sure that he was able to pronounce the Klingon language very fluidly, which is not a thing to say for a language that goes chop, 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 but very, very fluidly and fluently because he said, Klingon should be my first language. If I have trouble with a language, it should be English because that would be my second language, right? So he worked on making sure that when he said Klingon, it flowed very well. Of course, when he spoke English, it flowed very well too. But, but, but he was right about, about that insight, I think. But a lot, of, a lot of the other actors, as I say, some of the actors want to know exactly what they're saying. And some of them just said, how do I say this? And would, and would mimic. So you were on set for the production of Star Trek III, uh, I believe, to help out with everything, right? And I guess it sounds like you're also there for Star Trek VI. Um, uh, yeah, I, was there for, I was there for three, five, and six. Three, five, and six. Okay. Um, do you have any on-set stories that you remember fondly that uh, either were really great days on set for you <laughs> or very terrible days for the Klingon-speaking world? If you ask the Klingons, they're all terrible days. Because uh, <laughs> they had to say this stuff under heavy makeup. Yeah, in Star Trek Three, every time you see a Klingon speaking, I'm probably just out of, outside the frame. Not always. There was, there was a few scenes filmed when I wasn't there at all. But mostly, I was, I was right there. And would work with the actors. I'd say the line, they'd repeat. I'd say it. They'd repeat back and forth, back and forth, until the director said, okay, action, right? Uh, it, it would work that way. And... When you make a movie, and everybody probably knows this, whether, whether you've been on a movie set or not, you've seen movies about making movies. You know, the director says, action. And then the actors do whatever they do. And then the director says, cut, right? Well, after the director says, cut, he or she will check with the camera person. Was that okay? And the camera person say, yeah, that's fine. Or, oh no, the microphone made a shadow. Okay. Check with the sound person. Was that okay? Yeah, it was fine. No, a truck went by. And when the Klingon was involved, the third check was with me. How did the Klingon sound? And I would say the Klingon was okay, or he goofed. And if he goofed, we would shoot it over again. Well, I learned very, very quickly not to say he goofed very often. 
because they would always frown when I said that. Fortunately for Star Trek Three, no one had ever heard this language before, except for me. So if the actor said something that sounded like it could be Klingon, even if it wasn't what I wanted him to say, I would say, that's fine. And I'd make a note. You know, the actor said toe. He was supposed to say two. From now on, that word is toe. Okay, so the language started to change a little bit as, as a result of movie making, which is not to say they didn't take it seriously. They did. You were talking about French in particular. Uh, and how different languages have different sounds, characteristic sounds. There's one scene in Star Trek Three where, where Krug tells the gunner, there's a, there's a ship over there. I want you to shoot at it, but I want you to aim at the engine only. In other words, don't blow up the ship. I just want you to disable it, which doesn't happen. But anyway... Uh, and the way Krug says that is, is you know, foc- focus on there, focus on the engine, target the, in- target the engine only. And the way you say engine only is jota, means engine. Nech means only. So he says blah, 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 jota, nech, like that, is what he's supposed to say. So they filmed the scene, and Christopher Lloyd, you have to be called Christopher to be a Klingon, um, comes in and he says blah, 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 jontane like that. Leonard Nimoy's the director, right? Mr. Spock was my boss. And uh, he says, Leonard Nimoy says, cut, cut, cut. You're supposed to be talking Klingon, not French, right? So we did it over again, and he, and he, and he said, Jotatnech, like, like he's supposed to do that. So yeah, so they would, take, they would take it very, very seriously, but I had to weigh each mispronunciation to see if it was a big deal or not. So, so the, you know, the language change pronunciation or the, the actual form of some words changed as a result of doing this. Um, the grammar changed as a result of doing this. Oh, and another example of, of them taking it seriously. This, this is an example of, of the actors taking it seriously. Uh, what happens with that scene when he says, you know, hit the engine only is, is the gunner goofs and blows up the whole ship and Krug is angry. And he says to this gunner, that's what he's supposed to say. And then he, then he zaps him, he shoots him with this thing and the guy, guy dissolves. Um, is supposed to mean, I told you, engine only. I told you, engine only, right? We learned that line already. Um, so that was, that, that was the line. Um, I'll come back to that. Don't let me forget. Okay. Uh, after he dissolves the guy, okay, Krug had two helpers, right? One named Maltz and one named Torg. And he turns, uh, Torg says, right after right, right, Krug shoots that guy, he, he says, he says, my Lord. And Krug is still fuming. He's angry. And he turns to Torg and points the phaser at him or disruptor, whatever his weapon was. And says, and he says, you know, say the wrong thing, Torg, or I'll kill you too, right? So Christopher Plummer is supposed to, or Christopher Lloyd rather, is supposed to say that. So right before shooting the scene, he says, Mark, come here, come here, because this is all in English. After the Jotan Echen, come here, come here. How do you say Torg in Klingon? Now, I didn't make up the names for any of the characters, but I thought about it. Uh, so Krug isn't Krug. Krug is like that. Maltz isn't Maltz, it's Mach. And Torg, I told him, is Dorg, like that. And he said, okay, that's what I'm going to say. 
So da 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 come on, put John Tatnik, dissolve, dissolve. My lord, say the wrong thing, or I'll kill you too. Nimoy yells, cut. Why are you calling my Klingon a dork? Christopher Lloyd says, Mark told me to. Leonard says, Mark, what's the matter with Torg? I said, nothing. You know, you know Torg, is just, Torg is just fine. So they shoot the scene again when it's all over. Uh, Christopher Lloyd says to me, oh, I'm so sorry. I got you in trouble with the director. I said, no, it's fine. Everything's okay. He says, but did you notice I didn't say Torg? I said, Torg. I said it in Klingon, right? So he was really, he was, he was really into it. Uh, with that Jontanech thing, what happened was he said it just fine. He said, Come up, Jontanech. I told you, engine only, right? In post production, they decided to change the subtitle. So, Come up, Jontanech, which means I told you, engine only. The subtitle says, I wanted prisoners. I'm thinking, ah, what happened? Because we have another scene where he told the guy, Target, Jontanech. So I already have Jontanech, meaning, meaning only the engine. What are we going to do? How does this mean I wanted prisoners? So I thought about it and I said, well, the way the grammar works, and we haven't talked about this, but the way the grammar works, the object comes first. So prisoners is the object. I wanted prisoners. Prisoners is what I wanted. That's the object. So, so Kamapuk must mean prisoners. And Jontanech means want or, or capture. Anyway, when I made it, when I, I fiddled around with it and added some grammar, so Kamapu Jontanech means uh, I, I wanted to capture prisoners. So it's fine. It, it, it works out okay. But that was kind of a dirty trick. Yeah. So now you also wrote the Klingon Dictionary, which is beloved by Trek fans everywhere. I imagine it's probably one of the greatest resources out there for learning Klingon. I myself do not have it because Klingon is a language I'm not going to touch anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, talk to us about putting together an entire dictionary, really just not only making the entire language even deeper than it already is, but making it accessible to somebody like myself. When, when we were working on Star Trek III, and, you know, as I said earlier, there's lots of downtime when, when you're making a movie and we'd be sitting around and from time to time, somebody would come up to me, someone from the crew, the, the filmmaking crew, you know, would come up to me and say, uh, oh, you're the language guy. I'd say, yeah, and they'd say, say something in Klingon. And I'd say, what? What should I say? They'd say, say, hello, how are you? i say, oh, Klingon would never say that. And, ha, 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 go away. So I made up a Klingon sort of hello greeting thing just so I could change the response to that repeated question, which is, nuknech, which means, what do you want? Yeah. Anyway, I got thinking that if these guys, if, if the crew filmmaking crew who've worked on Star Trek before because they worked on a lot of them are the same ones who worked on the motion picture and so if they're interested in this language there's a kind of person out there who I didn't have a whole lot of contact with yet called a Star Trek fan they they might be interested in it too so I got the idea of writing a dictionary a, a description of the language and I proposed that to Harv Bennett I said do you think anyone would would care for this, is this a good idea to pursue in any way? And he said, it may be, uh, we're having a meeting this afternoon. I really lucked out. We're having a meeting this afternoon to discuss merchandising, which means the shirts and the hats and you know, all these things. I'll, I'll mention it. Later that day, I saw him. He said, don't be surprised if you get a call from Pocketbooks, which is the publisher of Star Trek books at the time. And I did. And ended up writing this dictionary. And it was written, the, the plan was the dictionary should come out at the same time Star Trek III opened in theaters. 
so that, you know, in theory, you could buy it in the lobby and follow along, or I don't know what they had in mind, but it was supposed to be available when the movie opened. And it was delayed in publication. I'm not sure why. I'm sure, again, it was boring bureaucratic stuff. So it didn't come out then. It came out about six months later. But in any event, when I sat down to write the book, it's called, the, it's called the, you know, a dictionary, but it's really two parts. The first part is a description of the grammar, and the second part is just the dictionary. So in the, for the description of the grammar, what I did is I went and uh, organized all the lines that I'd made up for the movie, whether they were actually in the movie or not. Because when you make a movie, lots of stuff gets cut out as you're going along. So I made up a lot more than what's, than what's in there. But that all counted for the dictionary. And then would describe what it is. Uh, how 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 it works, and it was very interesting. It was a very interesting procedure for me because I felt like I was writing my doctoral dissertation all over again. And what I mean by that is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for that work, I was dealing with someone else's notes and had no control over what was in them or what would come next, and just had to deal with what was there. And it was the same thing with Klingon, even though it was my work. Because if I didn't make it up, it wasn't there, right? So I'd have to, oh, now I have to account for this where I didn't before and things like that. And I had to figure out what I'd done. And every once in a while, I'd say, why did I do it like that? You know? And there was, I remember one time, there was, I had, I had four sentences that all did the same thing. And I could, okay, now I have some sentences to illustrate whatever this point is. Three of them made perfectly good sense to me. Just fine. Sentence number four, I said, what in the world was I on when I made up that sentence? Why did I do that? Well, what, what was I thinking? And then I realized that sentence is, in, it is not in the movie. That's one of, one of the ones that got cut out. So I could just erase it and throw it out. I couldn't do that, you know, when I was working on my dissertation, because that's legitimate stuff. But for this Klingon, I, I could do it. So I, anyway, described the grammar. And for the dictionary, I put in all the words that I'd made up for the movie, again, whether they're in the movie or not. And I went and did some research and, and made up words based on stuff in the original series uh, and the first movie a little bit uh, and the original series that had anything to do with episodes that had a lot of Klingons in it, in them. If it was just that, it would have been a really skinny book because there wasn't that much really. I figure I have to flesh it out. And in fleshing it out, I imposed a rule on myself, a restriction. And that was make up no words other than the ones from the, from the movie or TV shows. Make up no words that have anything to do with Klingon culture or geography. Which sounds weird for a dictionary to leave those kinds of words out. But the reason for that, or my reason for that, is I'm not a script writer. I'm not a story writer. And I didn't want to make up a word for something and then have some story writer, script writer come along later and contradict that. I said, let them make up the concept and I'll tell you what it's called. Okay. I've changed my mind about that over the years, but that was my thinking at the time. So all the rest of the words in the Klingon dictionary are good old ordinary everyday words that, that you might find useful. Not enough of them, apparently, because I'm still making up words to this day. So now the audio version of that book was done with Michael Dorn, correct? Well, there's no audio version of that book, but there's a, there's a, a, an offshoot, okay. which is called Conversational Klingon, right? Which is kind of like little language lessons, little little scenarios, and little scenes, and practice practice uh, pronunciation practice and grammar practice a little bit. And that was done with Michael Dornia, although we never met. We weren't we were never in the same place at the same time because he did his stuff in L.A. 
And this is one of my favorite things is, is my, my part of, of, that, of that audio thing. It was originally a, a cassette tape. Now I think it's out on DVD or CD, I guess. Anyway, uh, my recording, my, my, my work on that was done in Carnegie Hall. There's a little room in the back of Carnegie Hall, but it was still Carnegie Hall. So Klingon has been to Carnegie Hall. That's a pretty Klingon neat accomplishment. to Carnegie Hall, right? <laughs> well, you know, as it turns out, next week I'm actually going on vacation to Kronos. Ah. I was hoping to brush up a little bit on my Klingon. Uh, are there any phrases I should be aware of when I go there to say and what many things I shouldn't say? Just just, just say yes all the time. Kajak, kajak, kajak. Or, or loop. Oh, uh, loop. Okay. Oh, okay. Loop. Yeah. No, don't, don't, don't be intimidated. Actually, um, Conversational Klingon talks about visiting visiting Kronos, although although uh, the word Kronos wasn't invented yet when that when that uh. work was done because that didn't come till Star Trek VI. But years later, I worked on a project. There was a company in England that produces language learning discs. I don't know CDs, DVDs, something you throw in your computer. In, those, in the days we used to throw a disc in your computer. Um, for lots of different languages. And the template is the same. So if you're learning French or Spanish or Swahili or Hawaiian or, or whatever, it's the same words, okay? Translate all these different languages. And they wanted to do one for Klingon. And when I heard about this project, my original thinking was, this is very strange because if I'm here in America and I want to go to France, I'll get the French one so I can learn French words that'll be useful when I visit France. But they're going to use the same template. All the words are good human earth words. So if I'm an English speaker and I want to go to Kronos, these words aren't going to do me any good. But if I'm in, on Kronos and I'm going to come to uh, earth, then I want English lessons, not Klingon lessons. So I said, what is this for? But we did it anyway. And the, the Klingon speaking community Loved it because they, one of the comments I got was, this is great because now I can talk about everyday things. You know, I had to make up a Klingon word for toothpaste and aspirin. The Klingon word for aspirin translates as coward's medicine. Well, I don't take any of that stuff, so I'm not a coward. <laughs> Makes me feel better now. <laughs> so most recently, you also did some work on Star Trek Discovery. Uh, you worked with, uh, I know helping the Vulcan language happen with uh, Michael Burnham and Spock in season two. And you also were responsible for the Kelpian language. Right. And that I'm curious about, actually. So tell us a little bit about Kelpian and how you speak this language. It's weird. Kelpian, it's so weird. Kelpian is different because Kelpian started from scratch because there was no Kelpian words unless Kelpian is a Kelpian word, which it's not, but it resembles a Kelpian word uh, and, and people's names. So that was, you know, starting from basically zero. And for that... Uh, I, you know, when, when you're making up a language for yourself, you can do whatever you want. When you're making up a language for somebody else, which is all I've done, uh, you have to pay attention to what they want, obviously. And the people uh, in charge of Star Trek Discovery had a couple of ideas about what Kelpian should be like. They had, they had two particular requests. One is, you know, which, which they could change their mind about, but when we were first talking. Uh, one is they wanted this language to have clicks in it, like some South African languages do, the kinds of things. And they wanted it to be kind of melodic. And so those two things kind of go against each other, but okay. So that's what I did. Uh, I decided there should be only one click because clicks are a difficult thing for non-phonologically inclined <laughs> Uh, people to make so I figure anyone who makes anything closely resembling I kind of know kind of noise okay 
uh, and I made it made it slightly tonal. The, the pitch varies as you go along, and that's grammatically important. As are the clicks, grammatically important. And that was that was from their ideas. From my point of view, I looked at the Kelpians. I, I looked at Saru and his face, and his mouth got black back. Right? It, he, I said because of the makeup, he'd have a hard time making all kinds of sounds because his makeup wouldn't do that. So I shouldn't have O's and O's, except his name is Saru. So he has to have an O, but I'm sticking with my gun, so there's no O. <laughs> and I didn't want to have an M, but they made up some name of somebody with an M. I go, all right, you know. Uh, I tried to make the, the, the anatomy, the phys- physiology, physiognomy, whatever, go with, the, go with the language a little bit. I did that to a certain degree, but not, not 100%. Then had to think about the grammar, make up something interesting about the grammar that was very non-Klingon. That was another goal, to make it very non-Klingon and go from there. And it's, it's worked. It, it, you know, I, I, I think it's worked. You know? They also had me do a song. Uh, in, in one of the episodes, somebody dies and there's a funeral. So Saru sings a Kelpian funeral song. And the way that worked is they gave me the lyrics to the song in English, and said, you know, translate that into Kelpie. And I said, how does the song go? Because it has to match the song. And they said, we haven't written it yet. Just translate. So I translated it, and I made sure that there was rhymes, like songs do, and stuff like that. And then after a while, a month or so later, whatever, they sent me the, the music. They sent me the a musical score, you know, with, with notes and the words underneath, how they do. And they just forced it to match. And it sounds really good, but what's interesting is what what's kind of a long syllable when in spoken Kelpian is a very short syllable in the song, and little short syllables in spoken Kelpian are stretched out in the song and things like that. But you know, and there's no clicks. There was clicks written into it, but they decided not to use clicks for this particular song. And I've actually talked with Doug Jones about this, and we determined that it's just improper in singing a funeral song in Kelpian to have clicks. Fair enough. Uh, to the that. reason. Yeah. So outside of Star Trek, I think folks may also recognize your work and maybe your face from Disney's Atlantis. Uh, you yeah, helped provide the Atlantean language. <laughs> and uh, if, I, if I'm hearing this correctly, you were also the inspiration for the, the initial look of the main character in that film, Milo, who was voiced by Michael J. Fox. So right. that, uh, you got to tell that, you about that story. Yeah, that, that's that's one of those great Internet rumors. It's not yeah. true. It's, it's not, not true. true. Really? Yeah, I already had you... pictures of Milo before before I who's the character before I showed up on the scene. They, they were kind of impressed by the fact, I don't know if impressed is the right word, that the character of Milo works at the Smithsonian, is a linguist at the Smithsonian. And I was, for a while, a linguist at the Smithsonian. Milo's a little guy with glasses. I'm a little guy with glasses. So, you know, all that stuff kind of, kind of fits. And where that rumor may have started, besides the glasses, um, is when, when we were working on, on that. That was a long project. Making making Atlantis. I worked on that for four years, which does not mean every day for four years I worked on that, but it was stretched out over a four-year period. And at one point, I was in the Disney Animation Building in Burbank, and they said to me, uh, "The guy who draws Milo heard you're here. He'd like to meet you." I said, "Okay," because the way that worked, that I think I think that cartoon was the last Disney cartoon done in the traditional way. Of, of drawing and cells and stuff. There's some, there's some computer stuff in there, but the basic 
uh, structure of that film is the old fashioned way. Um, and each main character had his or her own animator. So the person animated Milo was in Burbank, the person animated somebody or there I heard was in Paris. And so you know, they're all over the place. But he was the Milo guy. So I went and talked with him for half an hour or so. And they took, before I went in, they said, don't be surprised if while you're talking to him, he's sketching the entire time because he does that. Okay, and that's exactly what happened. I couldn't see what he was sketching because he had the, the easel thing set up. But he was drawing stuff all the time he was talking to me. So I think that's where that rumor started that the character was based on me. And if, if you know, since he was an animator, not just a, a, a portrait artist, you know, do, do some of my hand movements or something, did they get into Milo? I don't know. I think it's still a pretty great rumor. You know, we've had that on the show a few times where I'll get information from one place. Turns out it's wrong, but I think this is one of those cases where I'm just going to say you're wrong. No, uh, you are Milo. <laughs> Deal with it. I'm Milo. Okay, I'll, I'll take. I I, um, I did not work with any of the actors on that film. Because I know right. Leonard Nimoy was also in that film too, so Leonard I was curious was if you actually helped too. him out. Yeah, and when we worked on Star Trek Two, Leonard and I, and I worked with Leonard again, obviously on Star Trek Three because he was the director on Star Trek Six. Uh, he was the producer and so on. So, so I worked with Leonard a lot, but Star Trek II was the first time I'd met him. And after we'd done, after he was done recording his uh, Vulcan lines, he took that piece of paper that I'd written the lines on and kind of wadded it up and threw it at me and said, did anyone ever tell you you're out of your mind? You know, that's a joke. And, haha, and, and then I left. Anyway, he ended up being one of the voices in Atlantis. And I was not there working with the actors. There was, there was a dialogue coach or dialect coach or something who did work with them, but I wasn't, and who talked with me a little bit, but I wasn't there. But when Leonard was recording his lines, he asked somebody who, who made up this language. And they said, oh, Mark Okran made it up. And Leonard said, Mark, I know him. He's out of his mind. Okay. <laughs> I'd met Michael J. Fox afterwards. Uh, because at the, at the premiere, there was two premieres, you know, red carpet kind of thing, premieres for the, for the film, one in Los Angeles and one in New York. And I went to the one in New York. And Michael J. Fox lives up there somewhere. So he came to that one, not to the L.A. one. And where I was sitting during this, it was a big party. Where I happened to be sitting was one table over from where, where he was sitting. And I figured, well, I should go talk to him because he had to say some of my lines. I'll go over and apologize so I went over and I didn't introduce myself. I said, I'm sorry, you know, you had to say that Atlantean stuff. I hope that wasn't too difficult. He says, oh, no. He says, the Atlantean was just fine. He says, I had trouble with the English. The Atlantean was fine. So you've got many books that you've written now on the Klingon. And uh, one that I think is pretty interesting is that you wrote a book on Klingon proverbs, uh, right. which is called The Klingon Way. Uh, do you have a favorite proverb that you can tell our listeners today? Klingon mach. And what's that one mean? We are Klingons. That's something you just say all the time. <laughs> The glory of the empire. Yeah, right, right. Same difference, pretty much. Right, right. They use that in Discovery, too, except they expanded it. In, in, in Discovery, they're, they're saying Klingons forever. I forget exactly what the, what the English is, but they say Klingon mach tach judge, which means we are Klingons. May it go on forever, something like that. So you I, create... point out, I, did not, I did not work on Klingon for Discovery. Okay. Okay. In, in the first season, there's a lot of Klingon. There sure I, is, a yeah. A lot of Klingon. And I didn't do that. Okay, that, those, it's all my grammar. It's all my vocabulary. But the actual translation of the lines was done primarily by a woman named Robin Stewart, uh, who lives in Canada. 
and some of the other stuff was done by a guy named Alan Anderson who lives in Indiana. Um, not me. And people have said to me, do you feel left out? Do you feel bad about that? My answer is no, no, not at all. I, I feel I feel humbled and honored that what I did is is uh, there's enough of it that without me they can they can translate all of this dialogue. And, and another interesting fact about Klingon in, in discoveries for the first season, but not for the later ones in the U.S. It's on uh, CBS All Access. And in Canada, I forget what it's on. It's on a Canadian streaming service. But everywhere else in the world, it was on Netflix. And Netflix, you have a choice of subtitles. International Netflix, right? So if you're watching a program in English, you can watch it with Spanish subtitles. If you're watching a program in Spanish, you can watch it with German subtitles and so on. And for Star Trek Discovery Season 1, you can watch the entire season with Klingon subtitles. Have you I done didn't that? Do that, either. Pro- that, was, that was done by a guy in Germany. I didn't do that. Have you watched it yet to see if it met up to your standards? Oh, definitely. There's definitely met up to my standards. Yeah. I was, I was, I was sort of in touch with some of these people some of the time, but they, no, they did it. I didn't do it. And it's, and it's really good. Although when, when the subtitle project was going on, I would get emails from, from this guy in Germany. He's leaving Litar is his name. He said, okay, I need a word for, and he wouldn't tell me why, because he signed a non-disclosure agreement. So he couldn't give me away any plot things. I said, I need context. I can't give you a word out of the blue. You know? We figured it out. He said something about a, about a mirror. I said, aha. But anyway. So Mark, we know that languages always have cognates. There's always a word that's going to sound similar to one word in one language as it will in another. Uh, for example, in Japanese, uh, for example, in English, you'd say camera. In Japanese, you would say kamera. It's basically the same thing, just pronounced a little bit differently. Uh, are there any cognates in Klingon for various languages? Well, well, what you talked about are not cognates. Cognates are, are words that that, uh, that are related to each other. Camera in Japanese was borrowed from English. Okay, so this is why you're the professor. That's I'm not. That, 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 that's a borrowing. A cognate is things like like English father uh, and Latin pater. Cognates are words that come from the same source originally. Camera in uh, in Japanese is a borrowing from English, which is why they, uh, they sound kind of alike. But a true cognate is, when, is, is two words in two different languages that come from the same source way back when. So that's like English father, Latin pater, English water, German wasser. Okay, the, historically, they're the same thing. Language is split in various ways, and the word developed from the cognate is, is borrowing. We're not aware of any languages related to Klingon. Now, Klingon has different dialects, so there's different ways to pronounce different things. In fact, in Star Trek, to get off the topic here, to, uh, in, in, in Star Trek VI, there's a scene where there's these Klingons, or there's a Klingon uh, lookout station or something, and the, uh, the Enterprise approaches, and they want to pretend they're a Klingon ship, so they're going to talk the, to the guards, but they have to talk to them in Klingon, and they say, don't use the universal translator because it'll be the Klingons will detect that somehow or other. So there's this massive scene with old dictionaries, old books, not mine, by the way, but all these other old dictionaries uh, going through all this so that Uhura says something other than Klingon. And these guys who talk Klingon talk a strange kind of Klingon. And some people say, oh, these actors did a bad job. No, they didn't. They did a great job. They're talking a different dialect of Klingon, which some members of the Klingon languages have taken to study. And now they have sessions where they talk only in this other dialect. But there's no other languages that we know of related to Klingon. 
there are, however, borrowings. Klingons have taken in words from other languages. So the word for coffee, for example, in Klingon is katvin, katvin, which is caffeine, and things like that. There's there's stuff like that. and lots of lots of animals on Earth. Word for elephant is elephant, elephant. You know, is taken in from English. So there's things like that. But but there's a lot of native Klingon words too. Yeah, yeah. Plants and animals are a problem. Yeah, that that's Star Trek. It's all about the secrecy these days. Right. But yeah. So now just looking at your work within Star Trek, you know, we're talking now, Klingon has been a language for decades and it's had such a huge impact on the fandom. There's now Klingon operas for real. There is now people doing Shakespearean Klingon, uh, people seeing Klingon pop music. It's pretty amazing how much of your contribution has actually yeah. done for the fandom. Have you ever really looked back and just really took it all in how, how important this actually was for this bizarre sci-fi series? I'm in awe. And surprised, yeah, because I never thought it would happen. Like I said, when I did the a little bit of Vulcan for Star Trek II, I said, that was cool, that was great, that's the end. And I had a similar feeling, actually, with, with Klingon. When I wrote the dictionary, you know, when you write a book, you hope people will buy it. <laughs> um, but I thought what would happen is people will buy it, and they'll kind of thumb through it, not read it, thumb through it, and say, oh, this is interesting. This is, oh, look, here's the Klingon word for this, and here's the Klingon word for that. Put it on their coffee table, and from time to time, pick it up. Maybe sit with it, watching the movie, to see that it really matches, because I want to make sure that it matches. But that's it. But I was wrong. I mean, people did buy it. I was right about that. Uh, but they read it very carefully, and reread it, and made outlines, and cataloged the typos, and did all kinds of things. Okay, and I didn't know all that was going on until until a year or so after the book was out, maybe three or four years after the book was out, when, when I was contacted by someone who said he was the head of something called the Klingon Language Institute. I said, the, the what? <laughs> and it turns out that's a group of people who are really into studying Klingon. That was my introduction to them. I've now been involved with that for 20 plus years, maybe 25 already. I don't know how many it is, a long time. But at the time, that was brand new, and I had no idea that it would take off like that. So these days, what's Mark Okren doing? I'm still making up Klingon. People sometimes say, you know, how long, how long does it take? How long did it take you to make up Klingon? And the answer is, you know, what, 35 years so far <laughs> or something like that. Uh, not, not so much for, for the TV or the movies because other people are doing that. Uh, but for the fans, for the, for the members of the Klingon Language Institute and for other people on various projects, Although they do most of the work on their own, but every, but every year, actually twice a year, I get a list of, we need a word for. So the vocabulary keeps growing. It's interesting. It made me think when, when the dictionary first came out, which was 1985, tail end of 84, beginning of 85. On the cover, they wrote that Klingon is the fastest growing language in the universe. And they, they sent me the cover before they actually, you know, started just reading the book. And I said, how can you say that? How do you know? How do you know that? <laughs> they make a statement like that. And they said, well, how many words does Klingon have in it? And at the time, I said, about 2,000. And how does that compare with other languages? I said, well, other languages have a lot more. So if you add one word to Klingon, percentage-wise, that's much bigger growth than one word added to another language, right? Yeah, that's why it's the fastest growing language in the universe. Okay, okay, you got me. But it's still growing. It's still, still making up new vocabulary all the time. So I'm doing that. And, uh, uh, did work on, on Discovery, not season one, that was all that Klingon stuff, but season two. Let's stop there for a moment. <laughs> oh, 
Uh, sounds like, all right. Oh well, yeah. I, I'm used to hearing that before. I, I have an idea of what that means, but that's good to hear that you're theoretically, maybe possibly still involved in the universe. So that's good to hear. Theoretically, maybe possibly. Yeah. All right. We'll take that. <laughs> so Mark, my last question for you today, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The best thing of being the part of the Star Trek universe is the fans is the people I've met as a result of this. There's people I've met literally all over the world. Some of whom have become very close friends and none of that would have happened without Star Trek. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for teaching us about the linguistics and the structure and all of this, all sorts of things about the Klingon language today. Uh, I don't think I'm still ready yet to be a fluent speaker, but I appreciate really learning about just the whole process that you go through to make languages. Uh, I think it's very fascinating. I'm sure that our listeners today are going to really, really appreciate this information. Okay. Well, thank you. I should, I should, I should end this the way a Klingon would, not the way I would. And how would that go? That would be like this. And Mark has given us the Klingon goodbye, folks. So, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Wherever you are, we appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) And for those who are not watching the YouTube version, Mark Okrand has left the building. But it turns out we weren't totally done just yet. And I wanted to cut in this moment here after the interview when Mark told me he did some research on how to say Trek Untold in Klingon. And, well, here's his explanation on how the heck you would say that. Actually, I thought about about how to say Trek Untold. Okay, that's a, a strange phrase in English. It is. <laughs> right? I was trying to think, what does that mean, Trek Untold? Um, and how would I translate that into Klingon? If, if someone were to ask me, <laughs> how would I translate that into Klingon? And what I came up with, because I wrote it down here. Okay. What I came up with, well, Trek, of course, means, means Star Trek. It doesn't mean travel in general, right? It means specifically Star Trek. So in Klingon, if you just said the word for, for trek, for travel, it would be taken to mean travel. Okay, and it would be no association with the program. So you have to say the whole thing. You have to say Star Trek. And the way you say Star Trek that we've come up with in Klingon is, is, is hovleng, hovleng, which means star travel. So that's star, hovleng. Uh, untold, you know, what is that? First I came up with secret, secret Star Trek. no. That's not right. That's that's not what it is. And I came up with with wedge hovling. Rich pubochpach. That means uh, the the Star Trek that no one has discussed yet. Something like that. But that's a literal translation, but it works. That's (laughs) very long for the title of something. (laughs) I mean, it's fairly literal, but I'll take it, yeah. yeah. And and you and you're watching or you're listening because because this is both we're doing this with video right yes it's gonna be both ways yep this is both ways so so you're uh, you're listening you're hearing is dachoy dachoy okay and you're seeing is daler daler and you're 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 you're, you're listening and or watching <laughs> is dachoy koj daler so the whole I'm gonna have to read this because because the untold trek is so strange. Uh, would be wedge hovling at rich football par da koi coach daler. All of that. <laughs> it's a challenge, I know. I'm just excited to actually hear it, so that's good enough for me. <laughs> so thank you, Mark, because now I know how Trek Untold sounds in Klingon, but as for me trying to actually say it, well, <laughs> that's not happening anytime soon. That's definitely going to be a fight for another day. And that's going to basically be a whole other episode of the show of me just trying to actually get my mouth to make those sounds.
The Klingons first appeared in the Star Trek original series episode, Errand of Mercy, and the main Klingon in that episode was Kor, who would be played by John Colicos. Kor returned in the animated series, and had several appearances in Deep Space Nine, and remains one of the most memorable Klingons in the series not named Worf. We spoke a bit today about how far the Klingon language has grown thanks to the fans, and if you search for Klingon on YouTube, you'll find things like poems, pop songs, Shakespeare, and many other things. And in my quest for all things Klingonese, I discovered that Rosario Dawson is a huge Star Trek fan and in fact speaks a little bit of Klingon. So if you ever happen to meet Rosario at a convention, throw a few Klingon words her way and see what happens. But do try to use some of the more polite ones. In other words, don't be a pitach to Rosario Dawson. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget, you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. Check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Trek Untold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us, too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this in the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that, and we also thank you for again choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity to Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And until next time, fortune favors the bold.